We've been studying the Gospel of John together uh, for, um, and, after, and I'm, I'm proud to announce today that after seven weeks, we're finally in chapter two. We spent seven weeks in chapter one, and now we turn the page into chapter two. So if you have a Bible, please turn to John chapter two. And we're going to be looking at verses, uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 today. And this is the story of Jesus turning water into wine. And instead of reading this story all at once and then going through that, we're going to work through the story just a little bit at a time and try to unpack the meaning as we go of this incredible story. So John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So the story opens up. We've got Mary, and we've got Jesus, and we've got the disciples, and they are at a wedding in Cana. Now, ancient Near Eastern cultures, like the Jewish culture of Jesus' day in a place like Cana, uh, put a very heavy emphasis on community and on family. And uh, because of this, weddings in Galilee in the first century were a huge deal, okay? Uh, Not just for the couple getting married, but for the entire community. You know, in America, we are more or less an individualistic culture. So weddings in America are ultimately about the couple that's getting married. You know what I mean? Like, it's about us. Like, that's why you'll hear people say, are you, they'll say to a bride-to-be, they'll say, are you ready for your big day? Uh, that's why we have, uh, people have scrapbooks and Pinterest boards of their dream wedding, uh, you know, because it's a celebration of who the bride and the groom are, and everyone shows up for them. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, or that I'm simply saying America is an individualistic culture, and we treat weddings as if it is the couple's big day, and everyone is there to celebrate them. But a wedding in first century Cana didn't just celebrate the couple. It was actually a celebration for and of the entire community because Cana is a very small town. I've been there. I mean, it's, it is, it's a very small town. There's really nothing there now except for uh, wine shops. You know, you think America's the only place that has capitalism. There's a lot of water-to-wine wine shops in Cana. Stephanie, you were there. You remember those. <laughs> you know, they're going to they're gonna, uh, jump on that opportunity. But Cana's a small town. And in these small towns in the first century, uh, you know, you would have a young man and a young woman. They were raised in this community by all these people. You know, it wasn't just that a mother and a father raised a child, but it was this whole community raised this, these, these, this young man and this young woman. And so when at their wedding, it's not just the young man and the young woman coming together. It's the community witnessing these two families coming together that they've been a part of their lives since they were born. And so it would have been a public feast for the entire town. It would have been a massive, massive party. And the party, weddings didn't last one night. They lasted an entire week. And the groom's family would provide catering and they would provide drinks and entertainment for everyone in the community for seven days. It would have been the biggest event. It would have been the only event in town, in that little town that week. Everyone was invited, everyone showed up, and everyone celebrated. And another important thing to notice or to note about this particular wedding is that it was the wedding was in Cana. And like I said, Cana was a very small town in Galilee. Uh, it was at, we're, we're familiar with Nazareth, you know, because that's where Jesus was from. It, you know, small town, what good can come out of Nazareth, we hear. Well, Cana was very similar, and it was actually nearby 
to Nazareth. It's a very similar type of town, probably working class, probably very poor. And so weddings were the, really the only time that anyone in this community would experience any type of luxury or any type of, you know, real celebration. It would be the only time that they would drink nice wine and eat expensive food. It was one week of their lives where they didn't feel poor or insignificant. And the wedding would be a cause for celebration, and it represented the best of what life could be. Now, I grew up, for those of you who know me, you know that I grew up in a small, relatively poor, working-class town. That's kind of the, that's what I grew up in. And I remember my senior prom. Anybody remember their senior prom? None of the, pe- none of the people I ever grew up with, we had never worn a tuxedo before. I didn't know what to do with a cummerbund. I still don't know what they're for, you know? <laughs> None of us had ever ridden in a limousine, and it was a special night for those of us in my community because for one night, we didn't feel insignificant, like we came from this small working class town. We felt important for one night, and so that's how they felt in Cana. They felt important. These these were mostly poor people with not much else to do, and for one week, there was a feast in Cana, and it was a great time for celebration. It was a great time for excitement and joy, and they were having the time of their lives, but then the worst possible thing that could happen happened. Look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, it says, So the wine ran out. This is a disaster. The mother of Jesus, Mary, comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. So here they are just a few days into this week-long party, and the alcohol has run out. So let's do the math on this. A seven-day supply of wine is gone within two to three days. That means one of two things. That means that either somebody overdid it, which is a lesson to all all of you, don't be that guy. Or, more likely, what it means is that the groom didn't order enough wine. And it doesn't seem like a big deal to us. Like, okay, the wine ran out. Like, you know, big deal. You know, we still have other things. It seems trivial, but what this would have meant two things for this community and this wedding party. First thing it meant was that the party was over. It was over. It would have ended in that moment. See, wine was the central element to the party. Wine was central to the meal, to the entertainment. It was the central symbol of celebration. So when the wine ran out, it meant that the dream was over. That week of feeling significant and wearing your nice dress and wearing, you know, your best clothes, it was over. And these poor Cana, people from Cana, they had to go back in this moment back to their real lives. No more luxury, no more celebration, no more week-long feast, no more party. Back to your ordinary life with all your ordinary problems, with all your pain and your overdue rent. Back to your life. Running out of wine meant that the joy of the party was over. It was over. And that was, uh, that was a, a tragedy. But not only that, this was a shame-honor culture which meant that the groom, by not ordering enough wine and not being prepared, had brought shame on himself and his entire family by throwing an insufficient party and by letting the entire community down. And some of you, because we have multiple cultures in our church, some of you grew up in an honor-shame culture. Or maybe you grew up in another country where it's sort of an honor-shame type society. Americans, we don't, we don't experience this quite as much, and so it's hard for us to wrap our minds around honor and shame. 
but to bring shame on yourself and your family and your community like this in this culture, in this time, was the worst thing you could possibly do. I mean, this was the worst outcome that could possibly happen for the groom. He would have been so ashamed that he felt, probably felt like he could not show his face in the community anymore. And so Mary comes to Jesus, and many scholars think that this wedding was probably a marriage of someone who was likely related or a family member to Mary somehow, so possibly a niece or a nephew, so maybe one of Jesus' cousins. So this was probably, scholars think, very personal for her. And she comes to Jesus, and she says, Jesus, they ran out of the wine. The joy of the party is over. Well, uh, the, the, the feast is ending early and the people are disappointed. The groom is now covered with shame. What was supposed to be a week where the groom could stand up tall and bless the community has now become a time where he's despised by the community and he hides in shame from the community and the people were grumbling about him. This did not go according to plan. In verse 4, it says that Jesus said to his mother, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I love that. What a picture of faith. Mary says to the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. (laughs) Mary was discouraged. Mary was afraid. And she didn't know how Jesus could make things better, but she knew he could. And she looks at the servant and she says, I don't know how he's going to do it. I don't know what the end is going to be, but you do whatever this guy says. You do whatever my son Jesus says. Mary didn't understand what Jesus was doing or how he would do it, but she knew that he could be trusted. And she told the servants, do what he tells you. And if there's any, I mean, we could stop the sermon right there and say, what is God's will for my life? To do what Jesus tells you. But verse 6 goes on, it says, Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. That's 150 to 180 gallons of water. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And Jesus said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. You know, the servants are like, What? We're gonna ta- what? And then they ladle it out and their eyes get big. Go, you've got what is going on here? And they take a cup to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, he says, I love this. Though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew where it came from. And the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, Whoa, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then they serve the poor wine. But you, You, you're so generous. You have kept the good wine until now. And Jesus takes six ordinary jars of water and turns them into six jars of the finest wine that anyone had ever tasted. And the master takes a sip and says to the groom, this is is good stuff. And he compliments the groom for his generosity. And he compliments the groom for giving great wine to his guests. And the story closes like this, verse 11. This, the first of Jesus' signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now, this is important. Because we often call what Jesus does here, turning water into wine and all the other various things we see Jesus do in the Gospels, what do we call them? We call it a miracle. But the Gospel of John never uses the word miracle. 
In fact, the Gospels never use the word miracle at all. John, he calls them signs. There's a big difference between a sign and a miracle, isn't there? A miracle is just something that suspends, you know, natural, you know, the natural order. But a sign is something that has a message. It doesn't just happen to impress people. It doesn't just happen to keep the party going. But there, it is pointing to something. Jesus turned water into wine. That, that, the water into wine wasn't the end in itself. Jesus was pointing to something greater. And John is trying to draw our attention to that. Every miracle in the Gospels is a sign of what the kingdom of God is like and what Jesus is like and how we are to relate to him. And so I want to give you two things that we can learn from this sign about what Jesus is like, about what he's accomplishing in our lives. Just as Jesus turned water into wine, here's the first sign, Jesus turns your shame into glory. Think about this story from the perspective of the groom. What, I mean, what a perspective, you know? Now, we don't have all these details, so this is maybe conjecture. This is me using my imagination here for a moment. But imagine the groom is throwing the party. It seems like it's going great. Everybody's having a good time. Everyone is eager to receive his generosity. Not only does he have a beautiful new bride in this moment, but he also, I mean, he has the respect and the excitement of the community at his home. They, I mean, he, uh, he's feeling it, you know. I mean, everything is going well, but then he looks over and he sees the servants who are pouring the wine, and now they've got a panicked look on their face. And he's going, oh, what's going on? And maybe he sees out of the corner of the eye that there's one last scoop of wine coming out of the, you know, there's one last glass of wine. And he's thinking, oh man, it's day three, and we ran out of wine. And immediately in that moment, his, as he sees the panic on the faces of the servants, he begins to panic himself and goes, oh my gosh, the wine is almost gone. I'm going to have to cancel the party in the middle of the party. I'm going to have to send everyone home. Everyone's going to be so disappointed in me. Everyone's going to be so discouraged that the party is over. They're going to think that I'm cheap. They're going to think that my family is cheap. My family will be ashamed of me. The community will be ashamed of me. And he's just panicking. And he's going, how am I ever going to show my face in this community again? But then moments later, the master of the feast, this is like the wedding planner, runs to him, runs up to the groom, big smile on his face, happy as can be, and gives the groom a big hug. And the groom is like, what is going on? And I imagine that the master of the feast, I always, every time I read this story, I think of Franck from Father of the Bride. Anybody? You know, I just think of somebody just excited and with, they're like, and comes and hugs the groom and happy. And the groom is going, what is going on? Why, why is my wedding planner so excited? And the, the, the master of the feast says to the groom, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. And he says, you know, and normally people serve the good stuff first, and then they serve the lesser stuff once people have kind of lost the taste of it a little bit. But you, you're so generous. You've saved the best for last. And the groom in an instant goes from fearing all the shame that is going to be put onto his shoulders to going, wait a second, I'm receiving glory for something that I didn't do. What is going on? And you've got to think that the community probably talked about this party for years. You know, this was like the bash. I mean, everybody else who had a wedding after this guy, like they had something to live up to because they're like, do you remember that groom? The wine that he served, it was so good. He didn't give us the stuff from the box. He gave us, you know, the stuff from Napa, the stuff from, you know, this. he gave us the good stuff. He was so generous. 
And here's what I want you to see from this story is that in this story, Jesus does all the work in the shadows. And the groom gets all the glory. Now that's the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus does the work, but we get the reward. And I believe this sign, this water to wine, is a sign that points us to the cross. There was nothing more shameful in a first century Roman-occupied territory than crucifixion. The cross was the place of ultimate shame. It's where the most shameful people of society would be crucified on display for all to see. And on the cross, Jesus was stripped of his royal clothes, and he put on your shame and my shame. And just like grapes have to be crushed in a wine press for good wine to be made, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, in this story, the groom gets all the glory and the reward for the wine. But it was actually Jesus who did all the work in the dark, in the kitchen. Jesus saw that the groom was going to be destroyed by his shame. So Jesus did something about it, and he bestowed glory upon the groom. And likewise, on the cross, Jesus absorbs our shame. And by his blood, we are forgiven and we are given new life. And he removes our shame and he turns it into his glory. And some of you here, I know it, you are overcome by your shame. Some of you are walking in shame and it's crippling you. You're experiencing shame because of something that was done to you. You experience shame because of something you did. You are walking with shame because of something you didn't do. Whatever it is, I know that many of you in this room and many of you watching online know what it's like to carry the weight of shame on your shoulders. And it's keeping you from experiencing the joy that God wants for you. And I want to tell you today that Jesus can lift your shame. He can absorb your shame into himself and bestow his glory and honor to you and restore your soul. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you know that in the gospel what happens is Jesus trades our shame and our guilt. We give him our shame and our guilt and he gives us the reward of his perfect life. I'm the Son of God, the one whom the Father is well pleased with. You give me your shame, I'll take that. You give me your guilt, I'll take that. I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you my glory. I've lived the life that the Father looks on me and says, well done, my beloved child with whom I'm well pleased. I'll take your sin, and here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the love of the Father. You're going to be accepted. You're going to be welcomed by the Father. Everything that is true of me is now true of you. And everything that is true of your sin has now been placed onto Jesus' shoulders. Jesus then takes that shame and that guilt. He dies on the cross with it. And we receive his glory by being given new life. Jesus turns our shame into glory. That's what the water into wine is pointing us to. But it also turns, it points us to this, that Jesus turns our sorrow into joy. Everyone in this room knows what sorrow is like. We all know what it feels like to have a party abruptly ended, to have something taken from you. I mean, just like the wine running out ruined this party 10 months ago, a virus came out of nowhere seemingly 
and ruined much of our lives. It ruined our economy, it ruined our security, it ruined our families, our health, our routines, our relationships. And some of you in this room, the pandemic has stripped you of your joy. It has taken your joy from you. And you feel like somebody at that party that has just been announced that, hey, the joy is gone, pack it up, go home. And you're kind of walking away from your life in shame and you feel like you're just sitting isolated in quarantine going, all the joy in my life has been taken from me. You feel like your wine ran out and your cup is empty. And I know that many of you are really struggling right now with this, but I want you to hear this. John chapter 2 is a sign. It is a sign that Jesus never lets sorrow have the last word. Jesus never lets sorrow have the last word in your life, in my life, or in all of the world. See, sure, there's going to be disappointments in your life. There's going to be times where you lose your joy. There's going to be times where you feel like the party is coming to an end. But the promise of Jesus is that he is building his kingdom. And one day he is going to wipe away all brokenness and sin from the earth. And there will be no sickness. There will be no pain, no more death, no more sorrow, no more heartbreak. And he is making all things new. And he will restore our joy once and for all. You see, Jesus turning water into wine not only points to the cross, but it points to the resurrection. Jesus always brings death out of, or life out of death, and he always brings joy out of sorrow. Sorrow may last for the night, the scriptures say, but joy comes with the morning. In this passage, I don't know if you caught this, but chapter 2, verse 1, it begins with this phrase, on the third day. On the third day, Jesus put water into some stone jars and out came incredible wine. And likewise, after Jesus was crucified, he went into a stone tomb. But on the third day, the stone was rolled away and out came new life and resurrection. See, the resurrection of Jesus shows us that death and sorrow will never have the last word when Jesus is in your life. You see, in this passage, Jesus saved the very best wine for last. And this ought to give us hope. That whatever is bringing us sorrow today will not be the last word over our lives. If your hope is in Jesus, if your, hope, your faith and your trust is in Jesus, then you can know without a doubt, just read the end of the book. <laughs> read the end of the book. You can know that sorrow never has the last word. If your hope is in Jesus, he always saves the best for last. There is a day coming where we will hear God the Father speak over us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. Man, I know that life you've lived brought a lot of sorrow and a lot of weariness and a lot of pain and a lot of loss and a lot of frustration and a lot of parties ended way too soon, but enter into my kingdom and we will walk through the gates of the kingdom of heaven and we will be embraced by Jesus himself and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. And once he wipes those tears of sorrow away from our eyes, our eyes will fill up with tears of joy. And we will fall on our faces before the King of kings and the Lord of lords who not only turns water into wine at a party in Cana, but he brings life out of death and joy out of sorrow to all of our lives. This is who Jesus is. 
And in the new heavens and new earth, the picture that the book of Revelation paints is that we will be at a wedding feast. We will be at a party that never ends. The wine will never run out. The joy will never run out. And Jesus will be in our midst for all of eternity. So you may feel like your wine has run out today, but Jesus has come to pour you another glass and another glass and another glass. Jesus came to make sure that the joy in your life does not have to run out. That's what the resurrection is. That's saying death cannot hold you down. Sin cannot hold you down. Shame cannot hold you down. Guilt cannot hold you down. Nothing can hold you down because a grave couldn't hold me down. And now I'm giving you my resurrection life. Let go of your shame. Let go of your sorrow and find rest in me because I'm giving you resurrection life. Follow me and you will experience life. Jesus came to make sure that our joy doesn't have to run out and that even when our wine jars feel empty and dry, if we trust and obey him, he will fill our jars with living water. Jesus turns our shame into glory and he turns our sorrow into joy. You know, I told you I grew up in a small working class town and, you know, earlier, a couple weeks ago, I was thinking there was a guy at the church that I grew up in he was a farmer. He was just a regular guy. And uh, his name was Marty Vernon. And on uh, December 31st this year, he passed away to coronavirus. But as I was reflecting on his life and I live streamed his funeral and heard people from my hometown tell stories about him, I used to remember, I mean, this is a farmer who would show up to Sunday morning church in overalls. And he used to sing in the choir, and every now and then he would get a solo, and he used to sing this song that, honestly, I made fun of because I thought it was so cheesy. But man, as I reflect on him now being in the presence of Jesus, I think of this song with a smile on my face, and the song went like this. You can laugh at it all you want, but I'm telling you, it's beautiful. He used to sing a song called, I'm drinking from the saucer because my cup has overflown. And that's what Jesus does. When the wine runs out, when we feel like our cup is empty, Jesus comes and through his death and through his resurrection, he pours more wine than our cup could ever hold and our joy overflows when we're in Jesus. So here's my invitation to you. If you are here today and you're ashamed of something you've done, something you didn't do, if you're carrying some kind of shame with you and you're going, man, how can this shame be taken from me? Or perhaps you're here and you're just, you're just filled with sorrow right now. Your friends are moving away. Everybody feels like everybody's leaving the city. People you love have passed away to coronavirus. You know, Sunday, morning, Sunday church doesn't feel the same because we're all spaced out. We're all wearing masks. If you've got sorrow today, if you've got shame today, I want you to take it and I want you to just lay it at Jesus' feet. And I want you to just trust that Jesus, it may hurt today and today it feels like the party is over and it feels like the shame is never going to be lifted. But the promise of the gospel is that through Jesus, you don't have to carry your shame anymore. And through Jesus, there is a promise that whatever sorrow we experience today will only be temporary because Jesus is, is inviting us into eternity in the new heavens and new earth. So would you, would you trust Jesus today? We're going to take communion in just a moment, and that is an opportunity again. 
I love that Jesus' mom told the servants. She said, do whatever he tells you. Well, you know what Jesus told us? He told us that every time we take the bread and the cup to do it in remembrance of him. So that we can be like the servants today and we can do what Jesus tells us to do. And what he's told us to do is to remember that his body and his blood, his body was broken so that our sorrow could be turned into joy joy and our shame could be turned into glory. And his blood was shed so that our sorrow and our shame could be removed from us and that we could have life and joy. And so as we take the bread and the cup, we'll be like the servants and we'll do what he says and we'll take those in remembrance of him. And I trust that as you reflect on the cross of Christ and the resurrection that followed three days later, I trust that God and His Spirit will begin restoring your soul. And I encourage you to go back to Him day after day after day because He will fill your empty wine glass even when it feels like it's run out. Let me pray for you, church. God, we love you. Thank you for turning water into wine. God, thank you for giving life to those of us who are dying. Thank you for giving glory to those of us who are covered in shame. Thank you for giving joy to those of us who are walking in sorrow. God, we need you today. And we thank you for your grace and your mercy and for these signs. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys take the communion when you're ready and then stand and worship with us.